So I'm happy this morning to be uh, continuing the theme that was started uh, one week ago, which is the exploration of the nature of the self and the nature of not-self, this core teaching that we have in the uh, Buddhist tradition, one of the basic teachings of the Buddha, anatta, or not-self. So uh, many of you, I think in the last week, were invited to look in your experience at two kinds of experiences. One, the experience of the arising of self in a, uh, we might say, a thick way or a thicker way so that there's a sense possibly of self-image or of self-consciousness or of uh, a strong sense of uh, I or me. Could be interpersonally, could be in uh, relationship to oneself, possibly through self-judgment, something like that. Uh, on the one hand, looking at that, and we'll continue really with that uh, invitation to investigation uh, in the coming weeks. And the second kind of uh, inquiry or, or uh, practice uh, was to look at times when the usual sense of uh, self, maybe we might say a thicker sense of self, is not as present. When there might be some uh, way that you are, could be with people close to you, where there's not much sense of self, where you're beyond uh, self-consciousness or self-image, there could be more of a sense of interconnection or interdependence or full immersion in an activity without any sense of self, whatever. Those are all very common experiences. It could be listening to music, being with trees, whatever. That those are, um, those are uh, common, and I think those for me are a good access point to uh, studying not-self. So how many of us looked uh, to some degree at self and not-self in the last week? Kind of following. That's great. So I'm I'll have to discipline myself and stop early enough so we can hear reports from the field. <laughs> reports from the field of self and not self. So, and to see what we're finding, what questions come up. So uh, today I want to uh, go further. Last time I gave an overview of some of the ways of looking at not-self. And I'm going to do a brief review of that uh, for the sake particularly of people who weren't here, but I think for all of us just to remember that starting point. And then the primary focus today is going to be looking at what we might call the various forms of self that appear in our experience. What are the varieties of self? What different manifestations of self are there? And use that analysis, really, as also um, a basis for inviting our own investigation in the coming week and and beyond. So, last time we looked at, really in a broad way, looked at the whole question of the nature of self and not-self uh, to give us some, uh, some starting points and some reference points for our practice and for our inquiry. And mentioning how that teaching of not-self is very fundamental among the teachings of the Buddha. That often when it's said 
here are the core insights that we are hoping to have or that the areas that we want to explore uh, more deeply. It's often said that there are three. This is the so-called three characteristics. One is impermanence. The second is the nature of suffering and the roots of suffering. And the third is insight into not-self, really into self and not-self. And that if we had to say what are the primary insights that we meditate to gain better access to, it would be those three. You know, and we can unpack each of those. You know, if we can think, for example, that the whole teaching that is maybe the fundamental teaching of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, is an unpacking of the nature of suffering and the roots of suffering. You know, and then impermanence is so crucial to see the, uh, the flow of experience and not get quite so caught up in the way that we make experience solid. And partly through the effects of language, partly through our, our psychological and spiritual tendencies. And uh, my intention next week is to unpack that core teaching of the Buddha and to focus there. That's, that's, that's my intention for, for next week, to really look at what those traditional teachings are. Uh, and, but that will, that will stay a reference point. I mentioned also how this teaching of uh, not-self, and talking about self is very confusing, you know, and I, I went into some detail about the different dimensions of confusion, you know, starting from the kind of Jewish Buddhist joke about if there's no self, then whose arthritis is this, you know, or, you know, we're just uh, going to the, all the different ways that the language can be very confusing. People talk about no self, self, Big self, self with a capital S, true self, false self, you know, and have all these, all these different, all these different versions. Or that words like ego are used in many different ways. Some people use the word ego negatively. Western psychologists use it more neutrally to talk about sort of the unifying functions of a human being and the psych- psychological ways that we unify the different parts of our experience. And that if we didn't have that, we'd actually uh, all be in trouble, right? So it's a little more more neutral. Um, so the language can be very confusing, can be also confusing. Don't we actually try to develop self in certain ways, even in our practice? Don't we try to develop certain qualities like loving kindness? You know, who's, who's sitting here doing the practice, if not the self? You know, who's doing loving kindness practice? Doesn't, you know... Um, you know, what's going on? So um, last week I tried to um, actually encourage some confusion, which is not usually what I do, you know, <laughs> and encourage uh, the kind of uh, maybe looking deeply and letting oneself be a little bit unsettled, maybe significantly unsettled or confused for the sake of looking freshly. You know? So that's what I was encouraging. And it can be conceptually uh, very confusing. And, uh, you know, you have these uh, passages where the Buddha, uh, who has been teaching supposedly not-self, addresses uh, someone who's visiting him and tells him, he asks, is there a self? And he's silent. 
is there no self? And he's silent as well. He, in a sense, refuses to answer that question. I think I'll look at that example more next week. It's uh, his, his answer to the, uh, uh, the kind of the wandering yogi Vachagota. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll look at that. Um, I'll look at that next time. Uh, so, you know, for Achan Cha's statement that the Thai forest uh, teacher, Thai forest tradition teacher who says that the teachings about self are not true, that there is no self is also not true. Keep practicing. <laughs> uh, so, again, uh, a lot of confusions. And I talked last time about approaching the, the, this investigation of self and not-self. Last time I talked about five different perspectives, and in the intervening week I consolidated two of them. So now there are four, keep it a little simpler. But I want to continually in these weeks refer to four perspectives I think, think are helpful. One of them is the perspective of the teachings of the Buddha. And you know, we, we can also bring in later Buddhist traditions and you know, at times I think other other spiritual traditions to, to, um, to look at what is in the teaching of not-self, what is the problem with a so-called self? What is the self that is the target of that criticism in that, in that tradition? Is it the same self that we have? You know, and so forth. Um, and what is being pointed to by the teaching of not-self? Because it's very clear, I think, that the Buddha is actually pointing beyond the usual construction of self and saying that certain ways that we use self may be advantageous, may be helpful. It's useful to have a sense of self doing the practice, right? That's useful. But there are also certain ways that ultimately, if we grab onto self, there results suffering. And that the deepest sense of freedom is beyond the usual constructions of self. Again, paradoxical, because in a sense we need to use certain constructions of self in order to go beyond the self. Or, as is said in modern psychological language by uh, Jack Engler, you have to have a self before you lose the self, from a psychological perspective. I'll, I'll go into that a little bit more. So that's one perspective, are these te- core Buddhist teachings. A second perspective is Western psychology and psychotherapy, which can give some very, very useful perspectives on the nature of self and where particularly the sense of self gets uh, constricted, where there are problems in the development of self. A lot of Western psychology, particularly oriented to psychotherapy, really aims to see where does the development of self become problematic? Where are there wounds? Where do we become neurotic? Where do we get really caught, stuck, fixated in our sense of self? And for me, it's helpful to have that, uh, that, those kind of understandings because it helps us to point out uh, where do I have a sense of self? And sometimes the way to address our problematic sense of self may be through psychological work more than meditation. You know, to really work with a particular 
way that um, we have a thick, stuck place of self. Could be through, you know, self-judgment, or it could be uh, something that uh, was, should have happened developmentally that didn't happen. You know, that that's also. So I'll I'll, I'll say more about that later. A third perspective is what we might call uh, social and historical ways of understanding the kinds of selves which appear in our times. In other words, different cultures have different cultural conditioning about self. Generally, most of us in this room are going to have a different sense of self than the Eskimos or, or than most of the people at the time of the Buddha. And it actually, I think, is helpful to know what those social and historical constructions are. What, how are we constructed to have a sense of self in early 21st century uh, Marin County? You know, and we can actually, there are people who can help us to see that. To me, that is very helpful for clarifying some of the senses of self that sometimes go beneath the radar. You know, because we are like fish swimming in the ocean, right? The ocean is our culture, and we don't always see our culture. We often see it when we go to another culture and say, hmm, they have a very different sense of self than us. Or I've talked sometimes about how um, I would have, uh, when I've gone to Asia for a period of time and come back, or also when I made several trips in the 1990s to the former Soviet Union and came back to the San Francisco area and said, hmm, there's a very different sense of self going on here. You know, and, 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 and uh, so again, I'll, I'll talk in more detail about that, but I think that's a very helpful perspective to come back to. So the first is teachings of the Buddha, second is more psychological perspectives, third is more social and historical perspectives, which we don't often look at, I think, in the context of meditation, which I think are helpful very helpful to look at. And the fourth, this is where I consolidated to, last time I talked about our everyday experience, and then the, also the experience of Westerners doing Buddhist meditation. And I brought those together. So our everyday experience, including our experience of meditation. So in a sense, we want to look at the, uh, the laboratory of our experience. And what do we find here? Because we, in a way, we have all of the above perspectives manifest in our experience. You know? And there's some very interesting ways that if we look closely at our experience, we can, we can be more illuminated. I also talked last time about how, in a sense, a simple way to understand some of these uh, sometimes perplexities about self and not self is to understand that um, it's pointing to the ways that there may be ways that our sense of self gets us stuck, which I think we all know. We all know that we often get stuck in a sense of self. But there can be lim- limited sense of self or ways that we are stuck in a sense of self that, in a sense, uh, are obstacles to freedom. And that can often be connected with suffering very directly. I think we, again, we can see this very easily when we are, for example, judging ourselves or um, don't like some aspect of ourselves. And we have that sense of, I am this person or that person. And the other aspect of that is that we really can point to 
something that is beyond those usual understandings of self, that we all have experiences where we have maybe more freedom, more, let maybe the sense of self gets thinner. Again, we can experience this in very ordinary ways, maybe when we're really fully in an activity, listening to music, you know, as an artist, as a musician, as an athlete, um, being with nature, being with people close to us, we often have that sense of, of fullness, you know, and uh, uh, quite, quite beautiful. And I brought in uh, one of my favorite books is, um, it brings out a lot of these kind of experiences in the field of sports. It's called Playing in the Zone by Andrew Cooper. And uh, I thought I'd just read, I may read a few of these over the weeks, but here's, here's one of them. This is from the Japanese uh, baseball player. Uh, let's see, who is this? Uh, uh, Sadaharu Oh. This is what he said about his experience when he's hitting home runs. <laughs> he was the greatest, I think he was the greatest home run hitter in Japanese baseball. I think maybe he had more than any uh, people in the, the leagues in, the, you know, in North America have. Anyway, he said, the home runs rocketed off my bat almost as though a power beyond my own was responsible. <laughs> I went to the plate with no thought other than this moment of hitting confronting me. It was everything, full immersion in the moment. And in the midst of it, in the midst of chanting and cheering crowds, colors, noises, hot and cold weather, the glare of lights or rain on my skin, there was only this noiseless, colorless, heatless void in which the pitcher and I together enacted our certain preordained ritual of the home run. (laughs) 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 Wonderful. Now maybe I'll, uh, I think we're going to, maybe in two weeks, we'll focus especially on that sense of... uh, uh, experiences that are more beyond the usual self and, you know, which are, again, are very, I think, both very ordinary and very uh, non-ordinary. They can, they can be both. So that was the, uh, that was the basis for, for now going further. So what I want to do for the rest of the time here is to talk about um, five ways that the self appears we might call five varieties of the self. And I'm doing this to help us have a little more precision when we look for the self in experience. In other words, there can be these different ways that the the self appears. And just a little bit of a preview of next time. We know that the particular criticism of a sense of self by the Buddha is that not always, but at times, the sense of self involves a sense of grasping onto self, that we can clearly, and grasping could also mean a kind of strong, uh, compulsive, or unconscious pushing away. We know that this is the way that we can grasp onto things we like, things we don't like. We can grasp onto um, views. This is my view. I'm really invested in this view. We can grasp onto our appearances, we can, as a sen- indicating a sense of self, we can grasp onto doing this or that activity, you know, I am a Buddhist meditator who is trying to go beyond self. <laughs> so, a lot of interesting ironies are possible here, <laughs> you know, you know, you know we, so I, I hear stories of 
you know, people who you know, <coughs> want to meditate so much that they, you know, their children may be, you know, I hear this occasionally, not too much, but a child may be crying and the parent is meditating and saying, can't you see I'm meditating and trying to develop compassion? You know, we find we find such ironies. Perhaps each of us knows such ironies personally. <laughs> so I think I think humor is very good to have to look into self. By the way, very important. So okay, so the um, the first sense of self is a more neutral sense of self of being an individual. You know, there's a a teacher who taught recently at Spirit Rock named Asokni Rinpoche. He talks about what he calls the mere I. There's a sense of self, but there's not much grasping. You know, and I think this is similar to what we have maybe with the, some of the uh, Western psychological uses of the term ego in a neutral way, where the ego or the self is simply the unifying function, that which sort of brings together um, brings together the different aspects of experience in some unified way, so that we're not fragmented. You know, and that is understood by many psychologists to have a neutral function. It can be a good way of doing it, a bad way of doing it, but that's part of what human beings typically experience in all cultures, in, in somewhat different ways. And it makes possible, you know, that sense of the unifying aspect of experience makes possible uh, self-reflection, looking at experience. We need some unified sense of self in order to be say, okay, I did that, was that a good idea? <laughs> right? If it was all fleeting without anything unifying it, we couldn't engage in self-reflection. We couldn't decide what to do so easily. So we have to have that kind of unifying sense of, something like a unifying sense of self. And we know that people who don't have that often uh, can't function very well. You know? So that's a more neutral sense of self, again, uh, the mere I, it could be not necessarily involved with fixation or grasping, but just the sense, okay, that's me. That's what's happening. I'm an individual, right? So that's one sense that we can have of a more, more neutral, uh, in a sense, less problematic uh, sense of self. Now, the, the interesting perspectives come uh, in the next three or the next four, actually. And this is, each of these is going to have ways that we can get stuck. So the second area is one that I'm calling, uh, it really relates to the cultural dimension, the cultural conditioning about self. I'm talking about this as philosophical and historical ideas. We might say philosophical, cultural, and historical ideas about the self, which we, uh, everyone in every culture, takes those in. And they influence us, and we often don't know that we're influenced, you know. And so it's a very interesting, interesting area that that ourselves are culturally conditioned, you know. So the cultural conditioning about self in the West is that, uh, we, especially in the U.S. at this time, is that of what what we might call uh, extreme individualism, you know. Uh, and a lot of sociologists have written about this. You know, there was a, a book a while ago called Habits of the Heart, a very famous book, in which the great sociologist Robert Bella, who taught at Berkeley, he talks about hyper-individualism, that there's a very high degree of individualism that we've moved away 
from the community-based life. It's like the central unit for our society is the, separate, is the separate individual, sometimes the separate family, the separate individual with wishes, desires, and the ability to consume many products. <laughs> this, is, this is the kind of self that the uh, advertisers aim at. You don't find the same kind of self in other cultures. You know, the interesting story from, that I heard when I was in Thailand uh, some time ago of Thailand in the 1950s was starting to be opened up to Western corporations. And the US, um, the US advisors told the uh, government of Thailand, your people are too contented. They will not want to buy anything. You know, you have to make them discontented. Right? Um, interesting, right? And what, and what does a lot of advertising do? You know, it, it kind of, it doesn't exactly always point to our nobler intentions, right? It could point to wanting to look good, keep up with the Joneses, maybe a certain amount of it out of fear, get this or you'll not have something or whatever. And so there, you know, this model of the self in our culture is, you know, it's, 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 it tends to be that of an individual self who is um, uh, increasingly separate from the community. And of course, with technology, this individual self is increasingly by oneself looking at a screen. <laughs> you know? And again, there are a lot of paradoxes about this because you know, the, there are aspects of the new technology which is having people be more interconnected as well. But it's also, in certain ways, isolating. There's that sense of the hyper-individual, everyone with a screen. And so that's our part of our cultural conditioning. There's also an aspect of it where we are um, really encouraged to develop the authentic self, you know, to be, to really be truly yourself. Uh, develop yourself in your own ways, really know what you want and go for it, <laughs> you know, and be authentic. You know, it's kind of interesting that this authenticity goes hand in hand with a, you know, a lot of conformism, but that's another matter, you know. And so we have this kind of conditioning, and some people have talked about it's a culture of narcissism, you know, a culture of people really looking, um, looking, looking at themselves. And so we um, we emphasize really having my desires, my wants and following them, you know, what do I really like, and so forth. And this, this, has, this is a contemporary construction, which it's helpful to know, to look at that, because again, if you've been in other cultures, you know that it's quite different. You know that, that people aren't necessarily oriented around their, their wishes or their desires, as in, as in the example I gave of Thailand. And I told the story last time of uh, how on uh, one of the times I was there at a conference, you know, I could see the Thai organizers bringing in uh, Western ways of expressing individuality, which seemed to be foreign to most of the people there, through the simple mechanism of telling people at the end of a conference, speak publicly about what one thing you liked and one thing you didn't like. <laughs> very interesting, you know, and you could see how it was something that was very uncomfortable for them at first, and then they really got into it. 
you know. So there are these different cultural models, you know, and our model is that of a somewhat disconnected self trying to be authentic increasingly, you know, and somewhat disconnected from the earth and somewhat dis- increasingly disconnected from community and so forth. And that's, that's a very strongly uh, culturally conditioned model. And it's different in different Western countries. And it's increasingly becoming the model of the whole world. You know? So that's a sense, that's a very good sense of self uh, to look at. Uh, just maybe one more line about that. Robert Bella says, hyper-individualism is formed in a society that encourages us to cut free from the past, to define our own selves, to choose the groups with which we will identify. The, the assumption is that the individual has a primary reality, whereas society is a second-order derived or artificial construct. So it's like the self is primary, and community, society, we have to deal with it, but it's kind of secondary. And that's a reversal of a lot of societies. So that's interesting. So that kind of, just to maybe to look and see, does that, does that to look in your experience, does that ring true? You know? And we can see again how other cultures have other culturally defined models of self. And I'm not saying that, that these are particularly good or bad in themselves. They have, uh, you know, and they may be understood best in an evolutionary way. I talked last time about something that's important for me, which is that the needs of our times, particularly the crisis of our times, may be calling for a really radical shift to a different sense of self that's less disconnected, more interdependent, and uh, less focused on individual wishes. You know, that that actually, in the context of our social issues, really may be shifting culturally for, for many of us, you know, kind of a critical mass of people can may be very important to kind of help us respond to the problems. It could be, I don't think that the hyper-individual self is going to have a really mature response to global climate change. Yeah. I think we know that, we can see that. So, so this work on the self isn't just meditative matter, but it has to do with how do we form a healthy culture or one that's needed for our time? So it's a, it's a big issue in that sense. There's also a, a third sense of self is the social eye, what we might call the social eye, the way that our sense of self is formed in relation to others. You know, and this can be done in a variety of ways. We may have a certain role, you know, so who are you? You know, like you introduce yourself at a party. Who are you? How do you identify yourself in terms of your roles or the different parts of, yourself, of your lives? Okay, so okay, I'm, some of us may identify ourselves by our work. I'm a spirit rock teacher, or I'm an artist, or I'm a meditator, or I'm a parent, or I'm unemployed, or Bodhidharma was asked by the emperor of China, the great Buddhist teacher was asked by the emperor of China, who are you? He says, I don't know. <laughs> Possible response. <laughs> so, so, you know, that the social roles can be linked to what we do. In a certain sense, they can be there without much uh, fixation, right? Or clinging, could be. We may just very matter-of-factly say, this is what I do, this is who I am. 
but they also can be matters of clinging. I think we know that. We can really identify with what we do. We can, uh, we can uh, somehow want that to be seen in a certain light. And it points to some of the other aspects of a social role, which is that often we want to be seen in a certain way or noticed in a certain way. And that a lot of our upbringing really often was in regard to that or not seen in a certain way. That we can have a sense that others are seeing us in a certain way. One of the most difficult aspects of being an adolescent is that this is the sense of the awkward self is very thick, right? And sometimes it doesn't go away (laughs) over the years or aspects of it, you know. I remember when I was a teenager, there were some, you know, a lot of it may have to do with our physical appearance, right? You know, and it's very thick for teenagers, you know, very thick for uh, teenage girls trying to fit certain models of attractiveness. We know that it's very, very intense issue, right? And can be, I know for myself, um, there were aspects of my physical appearance which I thought were, uh, could be improved, let's put it that way. Uh (laughs) Right, and probably, I think everyone of it, people who you would look at and say, oh, you know, very attractive people. Internally, everyone has something, right? You know, and for me, the, uh, I thought my problems, my main problems were uh, I had braces, which is pretty rough for adolescents. You know, so, so my identity, I am a person with braces because I am seen that way. I also thought my neck was too long and my feet were too big. I mean, maybe, maybe that's not too rough. Maybe some of you had much rougher issues with physical appearance, but those were, those, were, those were mine. And there's some way that that starts to form a sense of self, right? You know, I go in a public place and I have a sense, okay, um, I'll um, keep my shoes underneath, underneath so people can't see, or people ask me, what size shoe do you wear? I'll go down a few sizes. <laughs> play it safe, right? So I, I did that, you know, or, you know. Has anyone ever done anything like that? <laughs> so this is very interesting. Okay, when we have the discussion time, we'll have true confession period. Okay, uh, so it's just very interesting. Where does, where does the self get thick? You know, being an adolescent, the self gets very thick at times, where we can think of how we um, feel different or the, the, the way that we uh, take on other people's projections, you know. There's something, uh, you know, very poignant about how uh, we, we do that, you know. And, and, you know, in doing the work on the judgmental mind, how we take in other people's judgments of ourselves, particularly if they have some power in relationship to us, you know, who are, um, uh, a few years ago, I got to know well uh, uh, a woman who uh, has been blind since age one or two. And she wrote a very elegant essay about uh, how um, she could feel other people's projections and and, uh, almost inescapably took them on, you know. So people would uh, uh, essentially communicate uh, this was a young woman in her 20s at the time that I, that I met her. They would communicate essentially, oh, you poor thing. I wouldn't want to be you. 
right? And of course, she wrote incredibly elegantly and courageously about how she could feel that and how almost inescapably she took that on as a sense of her own self. She took in the projections of others, the images of others, to the point where she had to grapple with it, you know, and she could feel in herself the sense that I am an unfortunate one, right? I am, uh, I am flawed, you know, I am problematic. And she had to deal with that. She talked about that with a lot of, um, like I say, a lot of elegance and, and courage. Um, um, and she, she actually said it has a lot to do, she thought, the projection has a lot to do with people's fears about disability, right? So it's complex. But we all get certain projections, some people a lot more than others. You can think of the projections around race or class or gender or age, right? You can see it a lot. People who uh, are older get projections and take it in. And, you know, we have the, the sense, I am an old person. There's a sense of self there, right, that we can take in. And so I think there's a lot that, you know, just to actually see what's going on like that sometimes takes some looking to really notice that aspects of the social eye or the social role, what we've internalized, what, what, we, what, we do to, what we do to others. A fourth aspect of self, and this is particularly where psychology helps, is the places where there's some uh, fixation or some wound. And then psychologists are very good at identifying where in our own development was there something that didn't happen quite right. Where might there be a developmental wound? Where might I have, um, uh, where, where might my sense of self develop in a way which, in which there's some, maybe some kind of insecurity which becomes um, chronic, where I have a sense of self as inadequate or flawed. And again, in doing the work with people around the judgmental mind, I see that we all have some, some extent of this. We all have some way that we um, came of age, even with pretty good parenting, we all came of age not quite feeling okay and having these aspects of ourselves, which we sometimes call neuroses, where there's some stuckness in the self, where there's some kind of, uh, some kind of fixation, where maybe some part of ourself gets fragmented off. You know, it could be from an early age, you know, some, you know, example I often give, where let's say certain parts of myself were seen by my parents to not be okay, like my anger, let's say, right? And I could, um, um, I had to suppress my anger. So my anger gets fragmented off and I don't have access to a certain amount of anger, right? And I go through life like that and there's a certain sense of self that develops. I am a uh, not angry person or angry persons are bad, something like that. And there gets to be a sense of self that's linked with the particular uh, patterns of development. And some, you know, where I may be, uh, I may be uh, disconnected from my beauty, from my spirit, you know, if there's been a lot of wounds early on, you know. Uh, one book that I was reading by a man named Gabor Mate, he analyzed that he said that virtually, in his experience, virtually all addiction comes out of unresolved early wounds. 
you know, where there's a very thick sense of self and, and one tries to compensate in some way, but it doesn't really work, you know. And so um, this is where psychological work can kind of help us to look where is there some uh, stuckness or some where do I feel really uh, vulnerable maybe? Where do I feel, where does my sense of self, where, where, where does my wounded aspect appear or my hurt aspect appear? There could be some way that something has been uh, not, not resolved and of course one can work with this in uh, psychological work or in, in meditative work can also be very, very healing. Um, so essentially there, there are painful aspects of our experience that emerge over time and we generally try to wall those off so we don't experience it. So if I, again, if, I've, if I'm, uh, if my anger brought up uh, the anger of my parents, that you shouldn't be angry, then I will wall that off and not go there and I'll, defend, I'll develop defense mechanisms that prevent me from feeling the painful territory. Or if I'm, if I feel, um, again, the example I gave last time, if I had issues of my parents divorced when I was 10 and I felt abandoned, then there are certain issues about abandonment that will stay there in my life and will manifest as a strong sense of a wounded self or a needy self or something like that. And I think we all have a certain degree of that and it's helpful to see that. You know, and that, that can sometimes be where the self appears in a thick way. Because what we're interested in right now is just really looking at, the, at these aspects of self. The last aspect of self I'll mention is a little, I'll mention a little more briefly. Um, and this is, this is the aspect of the very distinction between self and other. So we could talk about the more subtle aspect of the self-other distinction or the way in which we have that separate sense of separation. And many of the spiritual traditions uh, point towards that sense of separation and subject-object, the very sense of being, I'm here and you're there, or I'm here and the tree is there. That that is a very customary way of experiencing, but it's not the final story. You know, that there's more of a sense that the deeper story is one of essentially interconnection in love and wisdom. That's kind of, that's the backdrop for all this. That's why we're looking at these different pieces because that's the potential that's pointed to. So that last aspect is just, we can tune into by saying, how do I experience a sense of being separate at all? When I'm, when I, you can explore, when I'm in the, in a beautiful part of the woods or the forest and I have, you know, and I have, uh, or I'm just meditating, I feel really secure and at peace. We can start to see that more subtle sense of difference and separation and in our meditations at times we can go beyond that. And a lot of the long-term aim of meditation is to touch that more and more and have that come more and more into our lives. But we can't really uh, develop that too much unless we also attend to the other aspects of self. We can't just go for transcendence, unfortunately. If we could, then, if that was appropriate, then we probably wouldn't meditate, we just would all take drugs, which some people tried. <laughs> Do you get the point? 
that it's actually, it's not just a matter of having a one-time experience, but it's a matter of actually uh, touching something, but then having that be more and more the ordinary experience of one's life, that having a sense of interconnection, transcendence, and whatever uh, becomes more ordinary. But we, we touch it, and then we have a sense of potential, or we, ha- we touch whatever language we use, we touch greater connection and love. So the invitation for these next week, this next week is to continue looking at the sense of self. So I'll again give these two suggestions. One is to really keep on studying the self, particularly be clear on which of these kinds of self are appearing. The mere eye or the more neutral sense of self, oh, it's just me, I'm just going. The sense of this more culturally conditioned sense of self, we can tune in. When do I get really into this authentic self with my wishes, my sense of what's right, and really this kind of very self-oriented or individual-oriented approach, which is very culturally conditioned. See if you can notice when that appears. It's kind of like the fish looking around at the water that we swim in. (laughs) A little hard, not so easy, but see if you can look at that. The third aspect is probably uh, the most accessible, and that's seeing where the sense of self gets thick because of the social um, milieu, the social role, when do I identify with my role, with who I think I am, when do I take in the projections of others, when are there aspects of my physical appearance, my thoughts, my views that I like or don't like, when do those get thick? To look at that. The fourth is the sense of one's own particular psychological uh, development and where there's some sort of fixation or where we get a little stuck individually or psychologically. And the fifth is this more subtle sense of uh, self and other distinction. So those are five aspects of self to study more. And we may, we may be primarily focusing on where it's accessible. It may be primarily that third one, the social, the social sense of self. That's, the mo- I think, the most accessible for most of us. So I'll invite that practice and taking notes. And the, the aim of all of this is to see more clearly what those senses of self are, to know them more clearly, and to see where, particularly where we get fixated or stuck or where there's grasping and where we don't. And what's useful about the sense of self and what's not useful. That's your assignment should you take it on. (laughs) So let's just uh, sit quietly for a moment, then we can talk a little bit together. Any uh, reflections, questions, sharings from your own explorations? Oh, please, Debbie. Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. One is that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. And the top one is self-actualization. Yeah. Um, and that's you know a Western a Western way of looking at things. But, yeah. But you know, in in some circles, it's considered the highest 
thing that you can achieve in, in yeah. the West. And the other thing is that that quote that you say, and I don't know who it's by, but yeah. you said more than once about if you really want to serve or maybe be a bodhisattva, then what you need to do is find out what energizes you. Oh, the Howard Thurman quote. Yeah, yeah. I love yeah. that quote. Yeah. Now, that's, you know, that quote is talking about you as an individual, yeah. I, I think. And so, you know, it really is a dichotomy, um, this area, because, and maybe the, maybe the answer is that we, we sort of do it simultaneously. We try to develop ourselves, but at the same time, we're like through meditation and other ways, are aware of the, the larger, the larger yeah. sense of non-self that's out there. Yeah. yeah. So, thank you. So, it's really brought out um, some of the subtleties. So, it, I, I, I'm conscious that I gave out a lot of material, right? A lot of perspectives that takes time to digest. And, uh, and so, for people who are here for the first time, the talk is on the web. It's on Dharma Seed. You can listen to it again. I intend to listen to it again. (laughs) Apply what this fellow is talking about to my own life. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Yeah, I think it's, maybe it's been taking some time to get on there. I'll I'll talk to, uh, I'll talk to people about that. Yeah, but it, um, it should, it should get on there. I'll, I'll ask about that. yeah, so the, the question, it's really a question of um, where is there, as it were, a helpful, healthy sense of self, and how does that relate to, in a sense, going beyond the self? You know, how, how, is that a clear enough way to say, to ask that question? Because it's, it's, it's sometimes, um, I think, a deep misunderstanding. One of the confusions often in Buddhist circles is that we're told that there's no self that the interpretation of anatta means, okay, there's no self, get with the program, kid, which just by itself it would be a contradiction, you know, like, you, (laughs) you that don't exist, realize that. So it's an internal contradiction, we would say. Um, And so so I think there are a lot of confusions there, but it, I think in actuality it makes sense to reconstruct even the very teachings of the Buddha as very much uh, pointing to the, uh, the helpful or skillful uses of a sense of self. Uh, another way to say it is that to touch the more unconditioned, we have to make use of the conditioned. That's one way to say it. Uh, that we have to, um, we point towards going beyond, but the way we get there is to skillfully use the self. Now, the self can get thinned, and we work through the places where it's thick and really linked with suffering. So there's definitely ways in which, as we practice, we work through certain places where the self is thick. What I'm, I'm using the word thick to mean where it's fixated or connected with a certain amount of suffering. And some of that can happen in meditation, just naturally. Some of it does require focused um, uh, individual work. For example, if someone has trauma, uh, meditation is probably not going to be the best way to directly work with that. That it's better, it would be better to do individual work. Or if uh, there have been a lot of um, if one's working with some aspects of a damaged past, one might have to really focus and do individual work to repair. You know, and 
um, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> and so the, uh, um, in, in the classical teachings, it's very clear that one, that one uses what we, would, what we would call aspects of the self in practice. In other words, one develops certain qualities. An individual becomes disciplined, has skill, perseveres, knows how to, uh, knows how to um, develop qualities like uh, mindfulness or equanimity or compassion. We can talk meaningfully about an individual developing these qualities. Now, and so there's that aspect of a self, or even in that quotation from Howard Thurman, do that which makes you come alive for what the world needs is people who have come alive. Now, you could make a point that that coming alive has an individual aspect, but it also, in a way, points beyond the individual. You know, that when one, you know, like in those examples of being fully immersed in activity, and I know this, I know this in the teaching role, which I sometimes reflect on, that for myself, when I was first teaching, I was much more conscious of uh, being an individual teaching, trying to do a good job, right? Now, I don't, to give you the secret, I, 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 don't, I don't think the same way. <laughs> I don't think the same way as I, I used to, but when I was first doing it, I wanted to do a good job, I would kind of evaluate myself afterwards. That's kind of the test of it. I would evaluate myself. Sometimes I would criticize myself. And I think there's, uh, and there was sometimes a sense of self in the moment. And increasingly, that's not there so much. And I think probably all of you, you know, when you're fully engaged in the activity that you really love and feel comfortable with, that sense of self-consciousness goes away, right? So there's, so that sense of doing that which you love, I think, points to ways that we transcend the ordinary sense of self in the activity. On the other hand, uh, you know, there's that, I'm getting a little more complex, but there's that sense of more of a Western sense. It's, I think it's also there in, in the Indian tradition, Asian Indian tradition, of, of my uh, vocation, or what is distinctively my own uh, self-actualization, right? That, that is unique to me. You know, that is a manifestation of my own gifts and abilities. And I, that, you know, I think that's connected with making, uh, doing what makes one come alive. And we all are aspiring in a way towards that. So, again, it can be more Western ideas. So I think it both is grounded in um, cultivating or, uh, the self, but also points beyond it. But we, we always want to look, where am I fixated? That's a lot of what we want to look at. Please. Yeah. Um, it's just been occurring to me yeah. lately and coming to me in different quotes in different ways, sort of a synchronicity. When I'm sitting yeah. in the mornings and, and having my meditation time and working on myself yeah. and doing the hard work, that that there is a mysterious way that I'm not doing it just for myself. Yeah. That I really am doing it. Yeah. Uh, for in a way the the whole the greater for whole for a large you know for a larger reason. Yeah. So, so the reflection, and your name again? Margaret. That Margaret's reflection was about how in her meditation there are ways that she goes beyond the separate self with her intention or maybe just the experience that in a sense she's doing this for others. And we, be, we often begin and end meditation 
with something that brings us to that understanding, that we're in this wider web, and that this isn't, that my own development, so-called, isn't just about me. That, of course, you know, in both obvious and less obvious ways, that it has my, you know, my, uh, my being more compassionate or mindful will have a big effect on those with whom I, I am. There's a beautiful mystery about that. Yeah. Yeah, and so also resting in mystery. Yeah. Maybe one, one more. I had someone on this side. Who had a? Oh, please. Yeah. yeah maybe last Dana. one. Dana. Yeah. And um, I just wanted to be concise about um, three observations. In the beginning of the week, um, I felt some relief of the idea of no self um, relieved me of um, trying to impress others. Yeah. Kind of a load off, just the idea of that. Yeah. Um, the second thing is, um, I definitely noticed um, with um, um, my personal physical health challenge, mm-hmm. um, the sensations physically um, actually made me um, the self get thicker um, mm-hmm. with my thoughts and my um, my feelings became more concrete. Mm-hmm. I, dived into them more, felt I just almost entitled to manifest or, or validate my mm-hmm. thoughts and feelings because I had the physical suffering. Mm-hmm. The last thing, um, which was kind of neat today in the meditation, mm. on a um, kind of energy um, level, meditating, I felt very much um, no self for um, um, close in in my body, my torso and my head, kind of light mm-hmm. and a very clear no-self. And mm-hmm. I felt like past that, um, going out even to my legs and this room and mm-hmm. the world, that became, the more out I went, the more thick I felt, the mm-hmm. more self and, mm-hmm. and, 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 yeah, and less self yeah. close in. Yeah. So very, very interesting observations from uh, uh, from Dana about, I think, was it first the um, way that there was some relaxation about uh, thinking, caring or thinking about what people thought of you in certain ways, which people say that happens as one gets older. Not in a, not in a linear way, I think, but um, uh, <laughs> sometimes. Um, and, and then, uh, secondly, feeling the thick sets of self around uh, health issues, right? And again, that could be a cause of suffering. It also could activate you to take care of yourself, right? So it's, we're not saying that self is inherently only a problem. You know? so it's, it's, and, and someone who didn't have a sense of self and had health issues, there might be a big problem, right? And who didn't act on it. Okay, I've got, there's no self here. You know? And there are people like that. You know, can misunderstand, or maybe they're who, who actually don't take care of themselves because of some problem with the sense of self. Right? Um, and so that that's interesting, but the, but it, of course it can lead to suffering as well. And then the third aspect was interesting about the actual immediate experience in meditation. You know, I think as one of the one of the ways that self that I didn't talk about so much that self manifests a lot is through our thoughts. And when the mind 
gets quiet and there aren't so many thoughts, it's very interesting what we can explore in terms of different sense of self, so to speak. Because a lot of the sense of self is manifested through thoughts. It's interesting to look at where does the sense of self come from in terms of thoughts, the sense of a body, our emotions. Interesting questions, right? What's my... And sometimes, but sometimes when the mind gets quiet, a major source of the sense of self isn't there in the same way. And we can explore in meditation when the mind's quiet sometimes, the, maybe the sense of the body expands. You know, when the mind gets quiet in the mountains or the forest, you can have a sense of more of the unity with the larger cosmos, really. And then, you know, or the experience of energy can be, can be a primary experience in which it's the uh, boundaries of self become more permeable. Quite interesting. You know, so there's a lot of interesting explorations there. And so um, I'll have to just discipline myself more so we have more reports next time. <laughs> just, maybe, maybe I have too many aspects of self I point. I don't know. But I'm, not, I'm just thinking. I'm just noting. I'm not really criticizing myself <laughs> or judging myself. I, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, it's okay if I do. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so uh, the invitation for next time is to continue the, mostly continue the investigation, I guess, uh, with the sense, with that openness of saying, in some ways I don't really know who I am. Let me inquire. In some ways I do, in some ways I don't. Can I have an open inquiry into self? And again, if it's helpful to consider those five aspects, the sense, more neutral sense of self, the mere I first, then the cultural conditioning about self, particularly for us, the very individual, authentic, trying to be authentic self. Again, not saying positive or negative, it's just there. Thirdly, the social, the ways we have a social uh, sense of self in relation to others. I like this, I don't like this, I feel self-conscious, and so forth. The fourth is looking at the more psychological dimension. Of course, these are all interrelated, looking at the more places where there's some uh, stuckness, uh, psychologically fixated, or we might say neurosis. Uh, Again, looking at that not as something bad, as something we all have. We all have places where a little bit stuck. We wouldn't be here if if we didn't. And then the last is the more that subtle sense of where do we, you know where do we move into a sense of, uh, of of more of not self or what's the subtle distinction between self and other that's typically pervasive, and when do we experience that as not being there? So that's the invitation. Let's just sit quietly, and I'll invite that. Set your intention for the next period of time. for this next week. And then we close by remembering our deep intention that this practice be a benefit to ourselves, to all those with whom we're in contact. And then as the circles get wider and widening, ultimately to all beings in known and also in mysterious ways.
thank you very much for your, your kind attention. And uh, to be continued, how many will continue with this looking into self? Or would like to do that to some extent? Okay. Thank you. To be continued. <laughs>